Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our learned friends in the history community come to get armed and dangerous. The podcast where myth and misconception gets to face the firing squad. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my ever-loyal co-host and gunner's mate, Kyle Glover. Hello. And we're back to the Second World War today, dear Ragers, and we're getting down and dirty with the weaponry. So, locking and loading with us today, we welcome the Keeper of Firearms and Artillery for the Royal Armouries Museum, Jonathan Ferguson. Jonathan, welcome to History Rage. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's been it's been quite some work to get you here as well. It has, yeah. Terrible organisation on my part. Technical issues. We've had it all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, and ours as well. <laughs> so I've been to a fair few of your talks and presentations, uh, particularly the somewhat unusual ones. So I come to reference your delightful talk on the M41A pulse rifle and the weapons of aliens. <laughs> Absolutely, that's Good. why I go to a that's, museum. That's and the film Aliens, not the weapons of actual aliens, just to clarify. Yeah, the armour is no, not, not those yet. Not yet, no. Not yet. Um, and your death and demonstration of the best weapon to use of the zombie apocalypse as well. Oh, amazing. Yeah, you saw the, that. The, I, I was talking the about that the other day. The, yeah. yeah. Did you ever get that wall yeah. repainted from all the fake blood? <laughs> they literally did have to repaint the wall. Uh, in fact, I think every now and again, you know, Facebook shows you stuff from... Uh, you know, yeah, a year or two years or whatever, long time ago now, five, five years, yeah, something like um, that. It the 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 photo is one my wife took of that sort of killing blow with the poleaxe <laughs> and this gout of blood <laughs> heading toward the wall. Uh, and my, I remember my uh, events colleague being absolutely mortified and and think, like, looking visibly pale that he was going to have to tell what was then a completely different company yeah. that ran the building effectively. <laughs> that he was that he was going to have to be redone. Oh, it was that, <laughs> but it was I mean, amazing. It was an amazing <laughs> show. It was. I just remember as well how just white Dan went when he'd actually had to swing a sword at something that felt like a real skull. Just, you know, like he never wanted yeah. to do that again. Interesting, isn't it? I do believe as well um, that Kyle. Am I right in thinking you went to the talk on the Victorian vampire hunting? Yes, as well? way back when. 
Yes. Yeah, so you've got loyal following yeah. here, Joe Muffin. Oh, yeah. thank you, guys. Thanks. <laughs> we, pre- we appreciate the support. <laughs> uh, but that isn't all of your job, as cool as that is. So would you mind telling our history ragers out there more about your actual work and, frankly, how you came to have such an amazing job title? It's right. Yes, well, it, it definitely is. It's, I, I can't think of a better one. Um, and I don't take this job for granted for a moment. It's It's absolutely my dream job. I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, well, I can, but it would be rubbish. <laughs> so, um, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, lots of luck involved and lots of uh, voluntary experience and then following jobs around the country, basically. So um, I did an archaeology degree. I did a museum studies course. Having actually gave up briefly, and the first time I ever visited the armories was a job interview for IBM, uh, just standard tedious graduate kind of yeah thing uh luckily i can't add up so uh, i failed miserably at that um, and, a, and a job interview with gchq also couldn't add up for that um and so i thought well what the hell let's do some voluntary work i, I was very lucky to have a bit of um spare cash from my my late grandmother um and uh used that wisely did six yeah. months full-time voluntary work and if I, I get this get asked this quite a bit what's the best way to get into museums well i get asked what's the best way to get into guns and museums, and sometimes both. They're not necessarily the same answer. But voluntary experience is pretty key. Yeah. Um, and then uh, my first job at Colchester Museum, which was great. And then I went to Duxford uh, Imperial War Museum, obviously, for, for a period of time. And then up to Edinburgh Castle as Assistant Curator of Military History, which was my first permanent uh, post, mm. which was great. <laughs> um, uh, but then this job came up, or rather the previous version of my job, Curator of Firearms, came up in 2009, and I was very fortunate to get that. So I came back down, um, having moved down from the northeast of England as a child, down to Somerset, and then all around the country. Uh, I also did two months at Dublin, um, National Museum of Dublin. Good um, Lord. Yeah. Of Ireland, rather, in, in Dublin. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Diverse range of experiences there. Yeah, all UK, all all, all British Isles, I should say, um, UK and Ireland. Um, nothing, nothing overseas, but still. So, what are the bits of your job as well that we don't see? I mean, we understand that you'll be managing the collection of firearms and artillery pieces that make up the Pre Royal Armouries Museums, but there's got to be so much more to it than that. Yeah, I, I get asked quite a bit. Um, what do you actually do? Uh, my wife thinks I play with guns all day. Yeah, if only that was true. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a small team. Uh, we're just recruiting a an assistant curator of artillery at the fort, actually. So we're we're up to six of us now, including me. Um, as you say, helping to look after the collection. Although we have a conservation department who do the the nitty gritty of that, um, and a registration team, and so lots of people are involved in in looking after the collection. What we're really there for is the knowledge. So whether that's cataloguing the objects, uh-huh. which is one, our only sort of key performance indicator, um, <laughs> is to actually catalogue the things so that people can hopefully find them. Um, that involves obviously knowing something or, or or learning something, which is actually partly why it's great. Answering inquiries, writing exhibitions with our public engagement team who who are you know, more more up to speed with the, the theory and the educational side of things. Yeah. Um, researching and writing articles, books, as, as time permits. That's the bulk of it, I think it's fair to say. I have a management role as well, because I do have this small team, yeah. um, which, which is less exciting, but um, 
you know, more more than worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say that if I, if I had a boss that had access to your collection of automatic weapons, I'd make sure I'd very much behave to myself at work. Well, they have access to it as well. Yes. It so. <laughs> <laughs> was really odd, actually, because when I, when I went to the collection on the appointment that we'd rearranged, it was just, I wasn't used to the idea of talking to somebody and then there is just automatic gunfire going on in the background. It must be very odd to get used to that happening. Yeah, I suppose it was, but I, have to, I suppose what I haven't told you is that that, that whole career is 13 plus years now. Uh, sorry, not that whole career, that... Uh, my time at the armory is mm. 13 and a half years so um i must have had that moment with the more practical side shall we say which we're fortunate as a as a, a working and reference collection as well as a museum collection we are a bit more active than the typical museum we're also um we also work closely with a or, or are based with actually a, a um, forensic company so a lot of um they have to test stuff out as well it's great to to sort of stay a bit more current than well, contemporary collection and keeping up with current events and stuff is part of the museum curator's role pretty much anywhere. Uh-huh. But we do get a, a bit more hands-on. Um, you, you, may, you may see in a couple of our videos that we that we will shoot the occasional thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm an avid follower of What Weapon Wednesday. Uh, Thank and, you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and guys, if you know, we will put a link out there to, uh, to the Armouries YouTube channel because Jonathan does appear doing quite in-depth analysis and presentations about a number of curious items within the collection so uh do keep do keep that viewing but we're going to dive now from from that which you love that which you are lucky to have to this which grinds away at your very soul and so jonathan would you please tell our baying mob of history rages out there what is the one thing you wish people would just stop believing the thing that you would like put up against the wall and shot well i don't i don't know if i've mellowed over the years um in some ways i have some ways i've probably got worse but uh, there aren't that many things that that sort of really get me annoyed um a a short list if i may Uh, fire away muskets being hopelessly inaccurate that that's probably a bugbear because the further back in time you go the less people tend to know about firearms it's probably why we are uh-huh. you know who we are and what we do so there's, there's that, that and then in the modern era things like silencers um being silent i think that's a bugbear for a lot of gun people uh the sten gun being completely worthless that that's i know that's close to your heart as well yeah. um and it's it's a difficult one because it's one that a lot awful lot of veterans uh believed and and believe that are hopefully still with us and they're not wrong in in some ways um but in the bigger picture it, it, it's a war-winning weapon. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, let, let, but that's not the, that's not the main one that we that we that we're going to come to. Um, the 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 Garand or Garand ping uh, is is one that occasionally makes me roll my eyes. The idea that that would have got anyone killed. Uh, <laughs> discuss, but you're wrong. Um, <laughs> and then the last one before I come to the one that I that I know you're keen to talk about is. Certain weapons or calibers being designed to wound and not kill. So I actually did some research on the proper research that ended yeah. up in a in a Smithsonian Institution publication, believe it or Good not. Good lord, I know um, that touched on this, and it, it was it was about uh, poison bullets, chewed bullets, hollow points, dum dums, all that all that fun stuff, and the sort of the meme that the enemy is trying to be is trying to kill us harder or worse, you know. 
Um, and part of, a little spin-off of that is the idea that, oh yes, the, the 5.56mm bullet was only designed to wound because it requires three people to take you off the battlefield. As with most of these things, there's a kernel of truth to it, but it's essentially bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> there is, and I still remember the, the, the great YouTube war of whichever year it was, over um, the MG42 and the Bren gun. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Right then. <laughs> yeah, MG42 versus Bren. Radio. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, I, I sort of go back and forth on it because whenever someone makes a bald assertion about one being better than the other, I tend to default to the opposite view because ultimately... <laughs> Neither of them was bad. Neither of them was a wonder. I mean, no one claims the Bren was a wonder weapon. Um, although there's a weird version of that for the, for the Brits, which is that the Bren was so accurate it was oh. too accurate. It's it's I've a, a very that, I've heard that crop up a lot. Yeah. it's a very British, weird, passive aggressive, self deprecating, humble brag, yeah. isn't it? You think about it. <laughs> The, oh, it's so it's 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 so accurate. It's too accurate for a machine gun, which is just absolute nonsense. But that comes from um, a nineteen forty oh forty or forty one, quite relatively early, unofficial manual about about um, British small arms, and it and it it's the author. And I, I think I even figured out who the author was. And he's using it in exactly that way. It's it's um, it's so accurate that you'll need to make it less accurate when you shoot it. Um, that's not true. I did I did a sort of a bit of informal research on this, and the the Bren is the Bren is no more accurate or inaccurate than the GPMG that any British Army veterans yeah. or, or other veterans will will be familiar with, and no one claims that as too accurate. So. Anyway, the, but the but of course the one that gets all the claims about how amazing it was, including from the from the Tommies from the Squaddies, is the MG42. You know, we get these period quotes uh, about uh, like tearing cloth and the 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 dreaded Spandau. I think is is one phrase that I was recently uh, reading from one of the memoirs. And of course, they're not wrong. To them, yeah, a rate of fire of twelve hundred rounds per minute and a seven nine two cart uh, by fifty seven yeah. round coming your way at that rate is absolutely terrifying and devastating and in in the defense static defense you absolutely wouldn't you know it's that classic pound for pound in a static defense situation yes you'd want an mg42 wouldn't you but there's a lot more to the tactical use of a machine gun than that yes (laughs) that's a starter thank you that's that's a starter Okay, I've got a couple of questions in the back of my head, but Kyle, do you want to, because yours is dealing with the history yeah. of it, let's let's kick off with yours first of all. Yeah, so just for the people who are in, into earlier periods, our medievalist, the Tudor people... The one yeah. classicist we've got yeah. out there, yeah. Yeah, for, for those people, <laughs> um, what is the MG42 and how does it come about? When does it enter service and by who? Mm. Well, but... Very simply, it steals the thunder from the MG34, which is the first actual general-purpose machine gun or universal machine gun, or at least the first one to see widespread service. And it's this idea that... I suppose the, the perhaps the, a good way to lead in is... If you've seen a, you know, a Vickers gun, a Maxim gun, a big heavy oh, gun with a big 
fat water jacket on it and a hose coming out of yep. it and belts of ammunition and a huge heavy tripod. That thing requires a team of six to operate. They could move it forward really quickly, impressively quickly, but it's a lot more effort and difficulty and manpower and, and ammunition to operate that thing. And so um, what the British Army does is introduce the Lewis gun. That's the first country to use the Lewis machine gun in uh, light machine gun in en masse in the First World War, and it gives that to the infantry to use as their sort of their very own, if you like, uh, within uh-huh. within inf- ordinary inf- infantry formations, and it takes the Vickers guns away from them and gives them to a specialist machine gun corps, and that sort of speaks to the quote-unquote heavy versus light machine guns. We, we could talk about what a heavy machine gun really is, but at the time, or at different times, the Vickers was the heavy, the Lewis was the light, so I'm kind of going off the point talking about British machine guns, but hopefully yeah. it's helpful. That is, yeah. no. They're the, they're the two main types. Yeah. You know, the, the Lewis gun is fed by a magazine. It's self-contained. One man can carry it forward and shoot it. It has a bipod on it for, for more accurate fire. Uh, the Vickers gun or any any Maxim-type gun is big, heavy, requires six men. And so what the Germans decide to do, because they've had their own experience with the, um, the MG08, their version of the Vickers gun effectively or equivalent to... And their version of the Lewis gun, where they didn't adopt a dedicated light machine gun, they tried to bodge one from the MG08. And so it's an MG08 with a buttstock, and it's not great. In fact, um, one of my favourite facts, confirmed by some German speakers, is that there's a phrase in German meaning ordinary or bog standard or unremarkable, which is uh, Funsen, I believe it is, which is 0815, because the light machine gun version is the MG0815. Aha. So this thing from the First World War has, has entered the German vernacular which and stayed there, which I think is fascinating. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, so that's that's the ultimate background for the German guns. They're, they've got this absolutely not fit for purpose like machine gun. And so in the 30s, 34, 1934, they come up with a much better lightweight, air-cooled, but still belt-fed machine gun. And it can operate like a Lewis gun or like an MG0815 used by one man or a team of two with a guy backing him up but realistically he's there with a rifle and the you know the machine gunner light machine gunner can operate on his own uh-huh. lots of the time we see this with the bren but he can also be the maxim you know uh, stick it on a on a tripod and it's as good as a maxim gun to a point um but that can be that can be argued as well I and mean, we've seen water-cooled maxim guns in use in ukraine for a reason in a very narrow niche, they are still of some use. But what you really need is a general-purpose machine gun, be that the L7 in British service, the PKM in, in well, countless other services from the Soviet bloc side, uh, a gun that you can pick up and use like a light machine gun or slap on a tripod for sustained fire, long-range fire, defensive fire, all of those things. That's the MG34. Yeah, but <laughs> that's seemed to be too expensive. Uh, they they obviously know where where things are going and what their ambitions are going to be and the scale of production they're going to need. And apparently, they're also struggling with adverse conditions with this thing. Um, I think the operating system is is perhaps questionable. Having said that, the thirty four served throughout the war, so yeah, your mileage may vary on that one. But anyway, they're 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 sufficiently concerned that uh, the German authorities this is that they engage several companies to look at a replacement that might be more reliable and certainly is more more cheap and that's the 42 and it comes ultimately from a sheet metal engineering firm much like the lines brothers uh firm that made 
a version of the Sten, yeah. which is a whole other story. But the whole point being, they're sheet metal people. They know how to bend and shape and, and, and rivet and weld sheet metal. They've never made gun in their lives. Uh, neither neither had Lines Brothers, the toy company who made the Sten Mark III. But they both tool up to des- redesign and tool up for a new, a new gun. Yeah. That's the parallel there. Yeah. And they come up with this uh, roller locked... This is getting very technical, but um, a recoil operator system, so no different than a Maxim in that respect. The barrel and the working parts move back and forth, but the locking is done by a pair of rollers that pop out and stop the bolt from going anywhere before you want it to go anywhere. So the pressure is contained. It doesn't blow up. All of the pressure puts the bullet down the barrel where you want it to be, and that's the heart of the forty-two. And the other aspect is this sheet metal architecture, really. Um, and then so they do trials uh, from 38, 1938 to 41 and it's introduced in 42 and 7042 and it's clearly the best firearm ever invented. Yes. <laughs> or or is it? <laughs> well, is it that? Because we, we see frequently this idea that like, you know, every German tank is a tiger, every German bunker and sandbag wall has an MG42 in it. And like you said before, it's that tearing cloth. I mean, I wouldn't want to stand in front of one. You know, <laughs> I I'd don't ju- recommend I'd it. Stand in front of a Mark II Sten. I'll take my chances on that one. But I don't oh, know. a but, bold claim. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to stand in front of one. But you know, really, how how many of them did Germany have? You know, are they difficult to use? Where do you need any particular talent to be able to use one? You know, how good are they as a weapon? Really, this I think this this actually cuts to the heart of the whole argument, in that. As I say, so I've said before, pound for pound, gun for gun, like one on one. If this was top trumps and you were putting one Bren versus one MG42, the Bren gun is getting annihilated. Even if there's not a crew behind the 42, and it's and they're both in LMG role, and yeah. it's just one guy behind each gun. Well, probably they'd kill each other, wouldn't they? Right. Logically, but um, if they're able to use cover and, and and movement and all that, and maybe they're hunting each other on some mythical battlefield. Yeah, the 42 That would be the best the version of the director's cut of Enemy of the Gates, <laughs> right there. <laughs> Let's make it happen. I'm sure we could do it in uh, Hell Let Loose or something, probably. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's that thing, you know, a Spitfire versus a Messerschmitt 109. Discuss a Bren versus an MG42. A Samurai Discuss. versus a Knight. <laughs> Deadliest yes. bloody warrior. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, you. Oh, God, what the worst one they ever, ever, ever did. Taliban versus IRA. Yes. Oh my god. Wow. Oh. Anyway, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um but that the whole point of where I'm rambling off on that on that point is that's not what happens yeah. ever, is it? Clearly. Well, I say that. Obviously, a Spitfire has faced a Messerschmitt before. So that's a that's a better analogy, but still. Once you scale it up from does it matter if we lose one pilot, one aircraft? Well, obviously to their families, to to them. Um, but when you get to the, anything like a strategic level of thinking, it's a whole different ball game, isn't it? You're you're looking at logistics, so feeding the thing at 1,200 rounds per minute that's that's not insignificant. So you need fire discipline, uh, which speaks to the training side of it, which you mentioned. So the the Bren, everyone in the infantry section was trained on that and could be trained on that in a matter of weeks. And if your Bren gunner shot, Bren gunner is shot, you pick it up, you fight with it. You know, that's that's an advantage for the Brent in context, and we're already therefore away from the pound for pound thing. Yeah, the forty two is definitely a disadvantage. 
but but is it you know is the gun worth the disadvantage? Arguably, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not saying just because I don't think it's a wonder weapon. I'm not saying it wasn't tremendous. It was a really good gun. But the context is what matters. And as you rightly say, in terms of numbers produced, a gun is no use to you if you can't produce any of them. Now, something like the Sturmgewehr, another wonder weapon of the <laughs> of the Second World War, they they definitively could not make enough of those to make any any significant difference. Uh, the forty two is is getting there. So about four hundred thousand of those were produced, but that's by the end of the war. Yeah. Um, obviously, you, you're stuffed if you're earlier in the war. Uh, whereas 577,000-something MG34s were produced. So if you're a German soldier uh, and you're perhaps unlucky enough to be given the heaviest gun in, in the in the, in the grouper to carry, you are just as likely to get a 34 as a 42, and as a, as a Tommy or, or GI or whoever, you are just as likely to be facing a 34 as a 42. And given the rate of fire of the 34 was like 900 rounds per minute, a lot of these Spandaus... Yeah were probably 34s. Yeah. So. I mean, when you stood in front of it, 900, 1200, who really yeah. cares? You're not, you're not sat there. Like, there. There is you're that. You're the stopwatch counting I, I, how many are going over your head. You must <laughs> not without getting shot, no. Um, I think, you know, the, your your combat veterans could probably guess nine times out of ten correctly, but a lot, you know, raw recruits wouldn't, wouldn't know the difference. Um, it'll depend very much on the environment as well. But I suppose the the bottom line is the forty two because it's a G, the first GPMG to be used per German doctrine has and even really a modern GPMG used in anything other than the light machine gun role. You have to be trained for a lot longer, a lot more intensively. You have to be cleverer. You know the the um, back in the machine gun corps days, they 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 had to hand pick men for, oh. who were clever enough to handle. I couldn't have done it. There's too much maths involved. So, <laughs> so you you are you're buying pound for pound firepower for the cost of logistical headaches, training headaches, and getting enough of these to the front line for them for them to make a difference. I suppose. I'd have got there's a couple of things I I want to raise in that. So we we did an excellent episode with Peter Kallik Adams on really just how Germany didn't think through its logistics and its production and and so forth. But if, as you say, you're creating the MG42 because it's cheap, putting 300 rounds a minute more through it is a shit ton more expensive. You know, could they actually get enough? A, could they actually get enough ammunition for it? And B, you know, how long can you realistically fire that before the barrel melts? Well, the the other aspect of of a GPMG, and actually of the Bren, so that if it's in a if you're in static defence, you would stick it it on a tripod and change its barrel, which is one reason why the Bren isn't as limited as as people think. Oh. Uh, it's not a, it's not as it's not a GPMG, but it 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 can serve that role in a pinch. It, I mean, the, the ammunition side, I I haven't done the research on whether they were able to keep them fed. Equally, I haven't come across any anything convincing to say that. It was it was a massive problem. Let's not forget the ammunition is the same ammunition as the Mauser rifle, as the G forty three self loading rifle, yeah, uh, the FG forty two. You know, so if you run out of the the MG forty two's ammo, you are in serious trouble because you can't feed your yeah. main weapons. Yeah, I suppose um, that's so I the same with the bread, really, isn't it? It's three oh three. Yeah, everybody's yeah. got it. It's been this stuff's been yeah. cranked out by so, the tens of millions. It's not a special round or anything. 
No, it's the single most important aspect of your whole yeah. small arms supply chain. So um, the issue would be getting it to the MG42 gunners, and given that they are organic to the infantry squad, as is the Bren, as isn't the the um, M1919 in the American squad, by the way. That's that's at company level. So that your, your ammunition, you might have ammunition problems in that respect. I don't know. But every you know, if if you're getting ammo to a to a squad or a section or a grouper they're able to put some in their MG42. Now, are they getting enough to feed the, the thirsty thirsty old beast? Um, I imagine, and I this is where I wish I spoke German and read German, or and maybe I'll um, speak to some contacts on that one day. I'd like to see some, some historical accounts, memoirs, whatever, uh, oral history even, on what the supply issues were really like for, the, for, for that gun toward the end of the war. Because, of course, they were struggling with everything in 1945, um, they weren't getting enough guns, and they and they wouldn't have been getting enough ammunition as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit bit hazier, I would say. Yeah, but it's still, if you have to paint that picture, this is not this is not the be all and end all war winning weapon of it, it's one tool. Yeah, and it, it's also in, inevitably like the, the the Bren is is a heavy it can be used as a heavy rifle, and and although the doctrine sort of says it should be used sim- in a similar way. To the, to the MG42 supporting the attacking riflemen, the reality is it was carried forward in the assault, fired from the hip, fired from the shoulder. So if you had a big, beefy, experienced Bren gunner, if I have to come down on one side or the other, uh, there are going to be situations where the Bren is is superior, and there are definitely going to be situations where the MG42 is superior. As a rule, it's going to be in the assault versus in the defence. Having said that, if you have a big, beefy German guy with an MG42, they definitely fired those from the hip as well, and that's pretty terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> just you know, just a, a guy with a with a Fritz helmet, with a belt of ammunition, ramboing it as he walks towards you. Yeah, um, that's got that's got to terrify the bejesus out of anyone. <laughs> but then you know, a steely eyed uh, Tommy in a tin hat with with a with his Bren firing it from the shoulder, short, accurate bursts. Or single shots. I was reading an account uh, only today, actually, because um, they've got me writing a World War Two introduction to uh, Arms and Armour book. I can't remember the chap's name, frustratingly, but he there was some sort of desperate engagement whether the Germans were were overwhelming them, and he I don't know if it was reasons of ammo shortage or, or tactical pressure, whatever. He shot eight of them in the head with single shots, and they they recovered the helmets, and they each had a single hole through the through the helmet so too accurate <laughs> <laughs> just accurate enough by the sounds of that burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating they always have their customers in mind their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you and with burrow you always get fast free shipping Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, right then. Uh, so we now have a question from one of our audience, actually one of our Patreon subscribers. So, uh, Kyle? Yeah, so this comes from Anthony Cavill, our Patreon supporter. Um, this is quite a big question, So, um, but um, why are people fascinated with this idea of German technology being superior, both in terms of tanks, planes, and the MG42 in particular? Yeah. Excuse me. Well, I, I think the biggest factor, I think, and there are, there are at least two, um, is it's that what if, isn't it? So the, the technology kind of hints at the way in which the Germans might have won and we might get Man in the High Castle or Fatherland or Wolfenstein the New Order or um, if, have you seen It Happened no, Here? The, the British, resist- that, the British yeah, resistance in uh, fighting against the invasion, yeah. Yes, yeah, definitely definitely watch that. That's that pretty fascinating. So I think, I think we're always fascinated by the road not travelled, uh, especially if the consequences are, you know, we're, you'd all be speaking German or whatever. Uh, obviously, I can obviously you wouldn't be. But... English. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Yeah, I know. Yeah, if I, if I was thinking, bring bring us some language. Yeah. No, I'm not <laughs> saying that. Uh, please, please strike that from the record. Um, <laughs> so, and that certainly would be my. You know, I, I have a version of this. I think as well. You know, it just it it even if if let's say it was more more the sort of um, dare I say agricultural, robust, aesthetically chunky. Soviet tech. Let, let's say it was a Cold War situation and and, and we'd lost. Um, I think there'd still be that factor of oh well, you know that. Oh, sorry, not if we were if we, if we were sort of speculating oh. about losing, which I suppose we do. Mm-hmm. Um, it still appeals, even though it doesn't have the sort of aesthetic, cool tech appeal of the German kit, which is the other aspect. I think is that it's just so cool. It looks futuristic. You know, the MG forty two. Another another point in its favour. It's still in use, you know, still using it 80 years later. Yeah. And people always associate aesthetics with, you know, form with function. Uh, you know, the Spitfire is so amazing because it looks so nice. Well, no. And actually later in its career, it's probably holding it back. Um, but, you know, the, the, the all-encasing receiver of the, of the MG42 with the barrel housed within it, I think there's a reason yeah. it get picked for, for, for movie roles and stuff as well. It looks... Still look contemporary, I think, uh, in many ways. Still is contemporary. And the same is true of a lot of the other technologies, which, which leads me to the, the dreaded uh, F word, uh, fetishization, uh, much beloved of academics. And, and I see both sides on it because I probably fetishize aspects of firearms. Um, and Who wouldn't, really? Come well, on. Well, you yeah. know, but, I, but I'm aware of it. And so I try to separate that from, from my more historian style activities. Um, and some people aren't, and they're un- they're unironically, you know, wherever boobs <laughs> or whatever um, about about things. So all of those factors, and but and I, you know, why are we fascinated with the enemy that and and, and if they won, well, it's this. I think it's the same thrill you get from watching horror movies or riding roller coasters. It's a safe scare, isn't it, to speculate? Oh, if they'd only made enough um, SDG forty fours, we'd have lost the war. No, we wouldn't. Nor, nor um, ME262s, nor King Tigers, nor any of this technology. It's just a tank. It's just a gun. It's just an aircraft. 
Yeah. yeah. There's, there's so <laughs> many other things apart from that. Yeah. <laughs> going on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, you could you could replace any any uh, machine gun in history with any other machine gun, with possible exceptions, and not a great deal would change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to bring you away from the Bren and the MG42 now, and uh, we're, we're going to get to that classic debate of the Sten. You said at the start ah. that you know your rage yeah. <laughs> is not that the Sten's worthless. And I will admit, I I can I love the Sten for its quirkiness and for all its faults. You know, I I always view it as a weapon that we won the war despite being issued rather than because of. But I can kind of possibly see its necessities in there. And I've spoken to a lot of people who, you know, we spoke to Fred Glover at Chaw Valley who got issued one, and he said once you once you worked out the kinks of it and adapted to it, it was fine. And then we've timeless numbers of people that have just said, yeah, I don't, I want one of them again ever, uh, uh. Uh, and so forth. But what in what ways, in your opinion, does it both deserve and not deserve the reputation that it's got? Yeah, well, I think that's the perfect question because it does both deserve and not deserve it. You're right. Um, and, and there are many factors. Uh, to discount one right away, and this is true of all all firearms history, it's the further back you go, the worse it is, is that people base their... If they have or claim practical experience, it's because they've fired a replica or in the US, uh, maybe a, a Sten that's been gas-axed into bits and then welded back together. And oddly, it doesn't quite well, work yeah. as reliably as it might have done. Um, the, fact, uh, the fact that they're all 70, 80 years old uh, is obviously, you know, a factor as well. Yeah. Uh, magazines have yeah, been readily available for, for a long time, but you've got to have good magazines. That was true then and it's true now. So be wary of people who claim current practical experience, including me. I've never had a stoppage with a Sten gun, um, and I've put a few hundred rounds through them. I've, I've uh, got a original. replica that has never jammed. A replica Mark V that has never jammed. But I would say it's a replica, so I yeah. can't really use that as big uh, as big evidence. Oh, well, I suppose that if people are shooting blanks as well, guns don't work in the same way on blank, uh, and which leads me to to a practical one of the practical considerations. If if you didn't if you didn't fire the right ammunition, now this is probably a minor one, but uh, it's got to be the you know Mark One or Mark Two Z British issue stuff. It's it's not you know it has to have the right oomph to yeah. to blow that bolt back and and do the job. And that that brings me to one of the aspects. And I I don't want to speak ill of of military veterans dead or alive, but they were for many of them it's their first experience of a of a submachine gun, certainly of an open bolt weapon. So I'm not going to blame them, but I might blame their training, perhaps depending on on who trained them. There are lots of stories of negligent discharges with uh-huh. it. That's one of its major sort of downsides. Well, it's true of any blowback submachine gun. Something that works, it, it isn't locked shut at the moment of firing. It's open when you fire it, and the bolt flies forward to chamber and fire the round. The problem there is, if you snag the cocking handle on something, potentially it could let go. Um, if you bang the butt on the ground, it could let, it could it could bounce back, pick up a round, fire it, shoot your mate in the back. And if that's the gun that shot your mate in the back, and maybe even you were the one holding the gun you're never going to trust that weapon again likewise if you have a weapon with a damaged uh, damaged feed lips on the magazine uh duff ammo yeah. from the factory if the if the quality control guy was was having a friday afternoon moment and that goes click when it should go bang if they're inherently less reliable than a bolt action the enfield um which would be your main weapon in, in 
in train basic training of course um and and the brat which is you know a gucci weapon made from solid lumps of steel <laughs> firing a rifle cartridge from a locked bolt with gas so having said that the Bren had early teething problems with the gas regulator so it's interesting to see which weapons develop good and bad reputations yeah but what it boils down to with the sten is it's a last ditch weapon you know it's uh. and, and it's our own fault we didn't put in the time to trial and adopt a submachine gun or a machine carbine as, as the brits called it yeah didn't see it as necessary till it was too late so the only salvation was a weapon like the sten quick to de- quickly designed and very quickly produced and if it wasn't as rubbish as it is it wouldn't have got made in the numbers yeah. we needed them because don't forget it's not just paras it's not just vehicle drivers it's every single section commander in the british army is supposed yeah. to have a submachine gun and there aren't enough tommy guns to go around so it's it's absolutely a war-winning weapon at the strategic level yeah I mean, it's not just that, like you say, every section character. It's SOE. It's the resistance. Yeah. It's oh yeah, sending them over to, to to other countries. I mean, I I've just done a presentation on the Heydrich assassination. I think he would have preferred uh, one that uh, that went bang rather than click. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. I've I've tried to uh, get to the bottom of that one. I I haven't got enough evidence. I yeah, mean, even if we were able to lay hands on the actual gun, which I think is in a museum. We, the time has passed. You know, some people said it was grass that that stopped it. Some people said it stopped firing because the butt had been left off it, and they tried to fire it without the butt. Who knows? It could have been anything. Um, I, I guess the the ultimate compliment to the Sten, ironically, is that the Nazis copied it when they were lacking submachine guns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at the end of the war, rather than at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. Is there some truth to that element that it is it is cheap to make, we can make it everywhere. It takes German ammunition. Assuming, like you say, you've got to use the right ammunition in it, but you know. Um I'm I'm a very kind of I'm not being a firearms curator, as far as I'm concerned, nine mil is nine mil. Well, it'll you know, it'll um if if it'll strip it out of the magazine and chamber it, it should fire it, fine. It's it's the firing the next shot. So it's the other that's the other aspect is you are going to get a certain rate of stoppages with with a weapon like that, whether it's a Sterling even, which is quite a Gucci submachine gun. You, you get almost as much griping about the Sterling from veterans yeah. as you do the Sten, and yet that's objectively one of like the top five submachine guns. I say objectively, as objectively as I can possibly claim it. Uh, it it's one of the best, uh, possibly even top three. Um, no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> there are too many. Anyway, point point is. No sort of firearms enthusiast or specialist would claim that the Sterling is anything other than a good gun, and yet you get a lot of the same complaints, including nonsense about bullets not going through blankets and greatcoats <laughs> about the Sterling as you do, as you do the Sten. Yeah. The other aspect, of course, is it's a design that could be made uh, not just anywhere but by anyone. So even regard it, dis- disregarding the toy factory story, which which is you know, significant but not yeah. not not well not war changing. It's the idea that untrained numpties like me on a production line could be trained how to weld, how to oh. weld, how to spot yeah. weld, yeah. and seam weld. And then you're, that's all, as much as you need to know, because it's a production line, to help make that gun. And then someone at the end is assembling it together. It's, yeah, it could be made quickly by non-specialists. I mean, that's the story of mass manufacture, of course, but yeah. the Sten takes it to insane levels of just, you know, almost anyone can put one together they're made in bicycle workshops 
They're being made now illicitly by criminals. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> how do you know that? because yeah, we see them. Uh, we see the reported. Yeah, they do. They yeah. Usually it's open. Nearly always it's just open source uh, news reports and things. Um, the 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 biggest. Well, no, not the biggest, but a good example would be the loyalist terrorists in Northern Ireland. People call them sterling copies. Then they're mostly closer to the Sten. Uh, now, to be fair, they're not they're not slavish copies of the Sten by any means. They are their own thing uh, uh with different uh, square and round section bodies and stuff but you do you do get quite direct copies of the of the sten um forgot weapons had a, a really good video recently about the the, the nome rhone um the french the engine people uh, and a sort of communist conspiracy type thing where this faction were making copies of the british sten the belgians made them the danish made them we've got them where where uh they could. They had to make the stock. They cast the stock out of metal because they didn't have the the same factory setup to make yeah. the, the traditional stock. So the basic design is is still sort of with us. It's been pushed aside by things like well, three D printing potentially, um, the Luti, the infamous Luti, uh, which takes the Sten spirit, as it were, uh, and transplants it into the illicit arena, or at least in the UK legislation situation. And ignores the history. We're not trying to make a Sten gun. We're trying to make a gun not using any firearm parts, even Sten parts, which are as far from firearm yeah. parts as most people yeah. are comfortable with. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, <clears throat> thank you. So, okay, Carl, if you want to dive in on the next question, now, I appreciate this is one that you wanted to err yourself away from, <clears throat> but we're going yeah. to ask it anyway. <laughs> so, tough. This is our podcast, our rules. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, Kyle, yeah, we've, dive we've kind of touched on this already, and we don't really believe there is such a thing. Um, but if there was one and only one uh, firearm that does change the face of the Second World War, what would it be? I don't know Ooh. the face of the Second World War. I, yeah, I think I think I could only. Well, I mean, if if it was legacy stuff, I could point to the the Sturmgewehr and say, well, that's that's tremendously influential. Most of it is sort of iterations upon what's come before. You know, the 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 M forty two. Well, thirty four really um, is one of the only real in- innovations in terms of this universal machine gun idea that you, that one machine gun can do it all. Even huh. then, after the war, some countries stick with light machine guns. Um, most of them do both, funnily enough, and they don't they don't rely on either side. Firearm type or class, I, th- I think, is an easier one. So you could say the submachine gun, because although it's introduced at the end of the First World War, you know the very fact that Britain felt it had to do the whole Sten project shows you how important it realised it was going to be. And then the course of the war demonstrates that, yeah, you really do need something, some sort of handheld automatic firepower that isn't... Yeah beefy brian with a bren gun that's great but it's it's not good enough what you want to do ideally is put a, mach- a, a, a miniature machine gun in every soldier's hand and that's where we lean toward the storm yeah, yeah. yeah but during the war itself i don't think there's a single type of firearm that changes the face of the battlefield um i mean if you if you zoom in and look at say the Nazis fighting the Soviets and they're coming up against whole platoons armed with PPS, uh, uh, Papasha 41 submachine guns, which speaks to what I was just saying about the submachine gun yeah. being super influential. That changes the face of that battlefield. 
because you can't meet like with like. You're having to rely on those MG42s for your base of fire, whereas they're all a base of fire. I know. I know what I'll pick. The M1 Garand. Well, well. What, even with that suicidal (laughs) ping? (laughs) Even with the death ping, it it is the, you know, again, like everything else I've spoken about, it has its predecessors and it isn't introduced during the, the war, but I think that's partly why it's able to... I see, even it doesn't change the face of the whole of every battlefield. But the ability for the soldier to to fire multiple shots without changing his point of aim, without altering his sight picture, provided he's properly trained, of course, that's the minimum that every infantryman needs today. So the assault rifle, very influential, but, you know, the Americans are going back to, at least on paper, and have bought 30,000 of them, or, well, of of both types but anyway uh, a a full power rifle that they're going to have to fire on on semi-automatic self-loading is more important than automatic where I'm going with that very few professional armed forces use automatic fire from rifles at all and so which means that if there's one most influential type of of infantry weapon you can argue it's the self-loading rifle and no one does self-loading rifles better than the Americans with the M1 Garand it's it's superbly reliable superbly accurate it's about the right weight and length the only limitation is capacity, and it still has several more rounds than a Mauser. Yeah. So if you if you're gonna if you're gonna hold one to my head, I'm gonna I'll tell yes. you it's that. But yeah. It isn't. Yeah. There's no such thing. What it's that if it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if I, my yeah. life depends on it, it's, I, I'm it's gonna the M1. flip that question round if you don't mind <laughs> as well. And uh, if you just, just what do you think is a is a firearm that they really shouldn't have bothered with? Well, I mean, you can say that about the Stungewehr in terms of its using up resources, um, especially resources. Whole new ammunition type has to be introduced to to serve to serve this thing. In that situation, context again is everything. The Nazi, the Nazis in that situation absolutely should not be trying to adopt in 1944 a paradigm shifting firearm. Yes, <laughs> because that's that's just silly. Do that after the war. Um, so, so you can argue that it's that, even though that's a superb weapon in many ways. Yeah, it's just completely um, the wrong time. Yeah, to be yeah. switching not only your weapon but your ammunition caliber as well. Yeah. Other than that, there, I think I can't think of anything offhand that you could say is just so terrible they shouldn't have bothered. I'm sure others will think of it and and comment. And... <laughs> Get on Twitter, people. Get on Twitter. That's... <laughs> If you I think can, of one before we finish, I'll let you at know. Royal Armouries, you know. Mm, yeah, well, uh, actually, mm, perhaps more arguable would be the, or more arguable in favour of, of it being a waste of time, and it, this speaks to sort of wider military history, is the FG-42, because that's essentially reinventing the wheel before it's been fully invented. You know, you've got this, you've got the Luftwaffe going this way with a sort of ersatz light machine gun that isn't really a light machine gun, and you've got the the army going the other way with the Sturmgewehr and Hitler in the middle going, knock it off, I just want a, a G43. Uh, at least till he comes around. So I guess if you had to pick one to delete from history and, and uh, tell one side, because we don't necessarily want them to win, given who we are, but um, <laughs> uh, t- tell the Luftwaffe to, to knock it off and stop trying to invent their own do-it-all weapon for paratroopers because some machine guns are good enough and you can drop them MG42s if they're that bothered. Sure. <laughs> And I suppose post-Crete, there is no point in a paratrooper weapon for the Luftwaffe because 
<laughs> They're just yep. not using paratroopers anymore. <laughs> well, funnily enough, that, that, as I understand it, is the origin story of the FG-42. It's because they couldn't, Ugh. they decided, maybe it's the workmen blaming their tools thing, that they couldn't reach their drop packs with their weapons and so they needed to drop yes. with a rifle light and compact enough to also act as a submachine gun light machine gun sniper rifle tea maker <laughs> rebel yes yeah and, and so that's why so yeah i mean you're right probably in the bigger picture you're absolutely right the military history would probably say would reinforce my 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 speculation that the fg-42 was a complete waste of time but it's extremely cool yeah <laughs> yeah but lots of clapping wearaboos out there for that. <laughs> Okay, um, last question then. So, coming back around to the uh, to the, to the MG forty two, and this is another question from one of our Patreon subscribers here, AD Bond. Thank you, AD, an absolute regular. So, was the American M sixty actually based on the MG forty two? Ah, well, um, this this is suspiciously relevant to to what I just said <laughs> because yes, but it's a it's a horrific cut and shut job of the MG forty two with the FG forty two. So it's so it's more FG than it is MG. It's essentially, and I believe they did actually do this, a belt-fed FG forty-two because they're so taken with how cool and Gucci and techy the, and oh, it's yeah. one gun to do it all, which people keep trying to do. We did it with SA eighty as well. Didn't work out <laughs> either. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It barely did it for the rifle. Um, <laughs> so, and then they decided that. So, so they graphed it. There's a photo of it. Um, might be able to find it online actually, where they take the it's that distinctive top cover of the MG42 with the feed mechanism underneath it, slapped onto the side of an FG42, um, which is clearly not going to work, but might have informed development. Did deform, uh, inform development? But what they ended up with was a sort of bastardized FG42 with revised form of MG42 feed with a conventional top arrangement. With something of the compactness of the forty-two, because it's it's sort of an abbreviated mechanism. It's not a bullpup, but it's you know fg forty two is getting close. The Brits did the same thing, and um, when when I uh, was researching my book, I, it was only then I fully realised how the EM one, uh, the Corsac EM one, one-off prototype essentially, or it is now anyway, was a British attempt to replicate this amazing Nazi wonder weapon, the FG forty-two, uh, but they stuck with the box magazine, and um, the Americans decided this was going to be their new belt-fed. You know, squad automatic weapon, um, squad machine gun at least, light machine gun, and that's to, that's not to say that the end, the end result wasn't fine. You know, the M60 is one of these maligned weapons, based in part on aging weapons uh, yeah. by the time of well the 1980s. So they're they're in terrible state. They've got problems with trigger mechanisms dropping off, and the, the, then the gun will just fire until it's empty. That's a that's going to be perceived as a major downside. They're wearing out generally. They've been a bit beat up in Vietnam, the ones that were that, that saw, saw through Vietnam. But if you got it a bit like a Sten, if you had a good one, it was a good machine gun. So there's always there's always nuance to that. But yeah, sorry, <laughs> very long answer to a short question. <laughs> yes, but it's more so an FG42. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at the MG. Um, looking at the M60 and an FG42 side by side. They do look very similar to my untrained eye. They. They do, and if you if you do a search on uh, the T twenty four was the American experimental designation for the the forty two converted to thirty or six, I think that's literally just an MG forty two converted to, to thirty or six, um, or thirty zero six, however you want to say it. But there is also a cut and shop job whose, whose designation escapes me. So they started from the right place in some ways, 
but they sort of I think they got um, a bit lured down led down the garden path by technology which is really the the overall message of this yes, discussion is technology is great but it's still, you know yeah, it's good still, enough it's can good be as your people yes. yeah absolutely yeah and your massive industrial military, military industrial complex which is what really yes. wins the war uh, especially if you get the Americans involved yeah, yes. well, yes. <laughs> well thank you very much Jonathan because that is that's been an eye opener for on a great many sides of things and challenged even a lot of my own kind of myths and mindsets so thank you very much yes it's been great thank you very much no very welcome good fun quite oddly therapeutic i didn't think i'd be that uh, animated you know but it's it's rather (laughs) cathartic isn't it uh well if you'd like to know more about jonathan's work then you can see him pretty much all over youtube on the royal armory's youtube channel as well as popping up on many other channels where weaponry is concerned and we will place links to those in the show notes and of course you can and should visit the royal armories in leeds at fort nelson in portsmouth and of course at the tower of london uh but once again jonathan thank you very much for uh for bringing a fully automatic rage <laughs> you're very welcome good to see you guys ladies and gentlemen i hope you've enjoyed this episode you can follow us on twitter at history rage or individually i am at paul bavel and i am at kyle g history and if you're loving this then why not join the angry mob on patreon because your five pound per month will get you early episodes entry into all of our prize draws the invites for questions to future guests and of course the coveted history rage mug and you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage But from all of us here, until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.